hey, look, there are things we do not know, things we cannot be certain of. But Dave Parker, there are three things we know for sure today. The sun's going to shine, the wind's going to blow, and big Dave's going to go full full. Ball is hit on the ground up the middle, base hit for Dave Parker. It didn't take him long, so it's four hits for Dave Parker, and a brilliant play in right center field on DeSensei to save a run. In the 70s and 80s, there were a handful of players who were box office, who by themselves were worth the price of admission. Guys who could single-handedly go out and win you a game with their feet, with their arm, with their bat. Hitters no pitcher wanted to face with everything on the line. One of those players was Pittsburgh Pirates legend, the Cobra, Dave Parker. Dave Parker finished his Hall of Fame-worthy 19-year career with 2,712 hits, 339 home runs, was a seven-time All-Star, two-time world champion, three-time silver slugger, three gold gloves, NL MVP. He finished top five in the MVP voting five times and one of the most electric players in baseball history. And he is my guest today. Welcome to the season one finale of the Lost Ballparks podcast. Join us now for another Brooklyn ball game here at Ebbets Field, Brooklyn, USA. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Hello, everyone, with Bob Prince and Nellie King. This is Gene Osborne speaking to you from Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. Well, friends, here we are back at the Polar Grounds in New York City. We're underway in the first of a Twilight Doubleheader Tiger Stadium. Just to start a thing, so pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shape or two throughout the evening. Dave Parker. Speaking. Welcome to Lost Ballparks. How are you? I'm good. So excited to talk to you today and so much I want to cover. So let's jump right into it. Yeah. You grew up about a block away from Cincinnati's Crosley Field when the Reds were in town. Good morning, everybody. This is Vin Scully along with Jerry Doggett here at Crosley Field for today's doubleheader between the Dodgers and the Cincinnati Reds. You would walk across the street and during batting practice, you and your buddies would park yourself beyond the left field wall. There were no stands there. And you would wait for balls to be hit over the wall. I mean, Frank Robinson could hit 20 in a batting practice session. Easy. So you guys would take the balls and you would keep some and then sell others? Yeah, we would keep a couple to play with and we would do our little hustle. Sell people balls that was hit out of the park doing batting practice. Being so close to the ballpark, you and your friends would play stickball in the parking lot at Crosley Field. And occasionally you would play another game, kind of like dodgeball. But with rocks. Yeah, we used to have rock battles. We would throw rocks at each other, and uh, it would be like two teams. One thing that we used to do with a flat rock, and we could make it go around the building, make it curve around the building. I used to do that one a lot. One time, a couple hours after a Reds game, you and your buddies were hurling rocks across the parking lot, and out walks Frank Robinson and Veda Penson. We used to see Veda and Frank come in every day. They had these white Thunderbirds with the porthole window. And uh, so we followed them every day. They were familiar with us. One day, Frank was taking out some equipment out of the back of his car because the clubhouse set away from the stadium. You had to walk a distance to the clubhouse. And uh, guys were asking for autographs. And I told him, I said, well, you know, give me some balls, something I can play with. He gave me the balls, and he also, while he was in the trunk of his car, he gave me a glove. And I looked for that glove forever and never can find it. So I guess it's lost in the archives. But that's a memory you'll never forget. Never forget it. 
And when you met him later on, did he remember those interactions? No, not really. Veda Pinton remembered me. He said, yeah, I remember you. You was a little bad green-eyed boy. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we had a relationship probably a little tighter than Frank and mine. Yeah, he remembered that you were the one causing trouble in the parking lot. <laughs> yeah, that rock made me famous. At age 15, after years of uh, sneaking into games at Crosley Field, you go to work as a vendor at the Reds' home ballpark, selling hot dogs and popcorn and the famous right field seats. Now, during the day, they would call the, the right field seats, they would call them the... Um, sun deck. The sun deck. At night, it was the moon deck, right? Right. What a great job, because that now gave you a perfect view. You don't have to sneak in anymore. Now you get a view of Johnny Bench and Pete Rose and Tony Perez and Frank Robinson, who we just mentioned. What did you think of Crosley Field, by the way? What did you like about that ballpark? Well, it provided us with two things, finance, uh, entertainment. So it was a a great place to be, but uh, it provided me with everything I needed. The summer after your sophomore year of high school, you find out that the Reds are holding an open tryout at Crosley Field. What was it like sitting in the clubhouse that day, getting ready to take the field? It was uh, one of the greatest things that happened to me as a, a teenager. You know, you're in ballpark with guys that you hear and see every day, and you got an opportunity to be at the same facility that they play and work at. It was great. Yeah, because here you are, like 15 or 16 years old. And so you go out on the field, and Pete Rose, by the way, has come by the ballpark to watch the young guys hit. The first pitch you see, you hit into the bleachers where just weeks before you were slinging hot dogs. Right. The second pitch, opposite field home run over the classic Mountain Dew sign in left field. And this goes on for a while, by the way. And then finally, as you make your way out of the ballpark, a Reds official says, hey, where are you going, kid? I I think we want to sign you. And what did you say to him? I told him you couldn't sign me. I'm in the 10th grade. <laughs> at 15 or 16, how, at that point, you're 6'4". 6'4", 220. As a 10th grader. Right. Yeah, you played baseball, but you were also an incredible football player. You had a dream to play for Ohio State. Uh, by the way, I grew up in Mansfield, Ohio. You're a homie. Yeah, listen, I grew up a Buckeye fan. From the time I was little, in fact, when I was five years old, I sent uh, Woody Hayes at Ohio State an application, uh, and I told him that I was one day going to play football at Ohio State. That dream, unfortunately, did not come true, but uh, but I was so excited when I was reading your book to hear how much you loved Ohio State. Yeah, it was um, a great school. If not for the leg injuries, you probably would have gone to Ohio State. Yeah, I would have probably went. I was... 6'4", 220, and I was real physical. Uh, I was a tailback on offense, and I was a Roman linebacker on defense. So uh, I was active and very physical. Yeah, well, I can't imagine being one of the kids on the other side of the football, running back from another team who had to run into you. Yeah, I got good results. Well, even though your football career was cut short by injuries, your baseball career began to take off, and eventually you got your opportunity. Pirates drafted you in 1970. Do you remember how much your signing bonus was for? $6,500. $6,500. Wow. Unbelievable. Um, okay, so 1972, you're playing in an exhibition game. You're playing in center field for the Pirates. We're here at Pirate City. This is the winter home of the world champion Pittsburgh Pirates. 
And Roberto Clemente is sitting in the dugout. So this is going to be a really, really tough fight. Watching you throw a bullet from center field to home on the fly. And he says, I think to Manny Sanguian, hey, that's my replacement out there. And then Manny replies to him, he's not in your position. Clemente smiles and says, I know a right fielder when I see one. When you hear that story, how good does that make you feel? Makes me feel great because um, he was considered the great one. And if you get any kind of high praise in baseball, it comes from players like him. And you spent time with Roberto Clemente in spring training. I mean, he really helped refine your outfield play. As you put it in your book, he revealed secrets to you about the game that would ultimately change your life. Right. I was a catcher, so I used to short on the ball. And it would have velocity, but it wouldn't be maximized. And he uh, was standing out in the outfield for many stars around myself. And uh, Roberto was showing me how to reach back, fall back in the stance as you can, and then let it go. They said that it would improve my throwing, and it did. It put about 30 miles an hour more on my throws. And uh, they were instrumental to me developing my arm. And you go on to become arguably one of the greatest right field arms in baseball history. It will. Parker, a good arm. Tagging is Murray. Here comes a throw. Here comes oh, Murray. Oh. Is dead. Now, what that's why by Parker. That's why we wanted you to meet Dave Parker in the pregame show. The enormous versatility of that brilliant athlete. In July of 1973, you made your major league debut at San Diego Stadium, which of course was later named Jack Murphy Stadium. Up to that point, I mean, you're a kid with a dream, battling a lot of other kids through the ragged edges of minor league baseball, and then you land at Lindbergh Field in San Diego and make your way to a major league ballpark for the first time where you're going to play. And I think you got to the ballpark that day in the seventh inning, and you still put your uniform on. Well, you know, this is what I dreamed of, getting to the major leagues. I uh, was just feeling so good about it that I left my uniform on, telling me the game is almost over. I said, I'm waiting too long to get here. I'm going to put this uniform on one way or another. And you soaked up every moment of that. Oh, yeah. That was a thrill of my life. I can still remember Bob Prince, who was the voice of the Pirates from 1948 to 1975, calling you Cobra on the broadcast. I think the organist at Three River Stadium would sometimes even play uh, like this snake charmer music after you'd get a hit. You weren't sure about that nickname at first, but then you found out that it was kind of a tribute to a boxer from the 50s uh, called the Cincinnati Cobra when you're from Cincinnati, so you you began to appreciate it. Right. Ezra Charles was his name. He was a heavyweight champ. You made your first All-Star Game appearance in 1977 at Yankee Stadium. Joe DiMaggio was the honorary captain of the American League, and legendary Yankees PA announcer Bob Shepard had the call. He hit a home run in the first All-Star Game at Yankee Stadium in 1939. An 11-time All-Star performer with the Yankees, a member of baseball's Hall of Fame, the Yankee Clipper, number five, Joe DiMaggio. Willie Mays, the honorary captain of the National League. The third leading home run hitter of all time. He's appeared in 24 All-Star games as a player with the Giants and the Mets. The Say Hey Kid, 
number 24, Willie Mays. So it's under this setting that here you are in your first All-Star game at Yankee Stadium. What were your impressions of the ballpark? Well, you thought about history first, and uh, you wanted to see the, the stadium because it was so famous. I uh, enjoy being in Yankee Stadium. We even had a throwing contest with Winfield, Reggie Smith, myself, and... Uh, and Montreal Expo, Ellis Valentine was there too, right? Yeah, Ellis Valentine was a part of it. And Ellis had an arm that was had to be one of the greatest in the game. He used to throw the ball low by chest high and get carried. That's what made him so so special as an outfielder. All right, so first inning, you get a chance to hit. Here's Dave Parker, who in batting practice and infield practice had that bright yellow Pittsburgh uniform on, but he can hit. Is it true that you couldn't find your Pirates helmet, so you borrowed Dave Winfield's? Or his Padre helmet. So you hit with the Padre helmet? Yeah, it was ugly. All that black and yellow, and then you got that yellow and brown. It clashed. I think a lot of people in San Diego would have loved to have seen you officially in a Padre helmet. <laughs> I would have enjoyed it. Well, it is ideal. Well, using Dave Winfield's Padre helmet must have brought you good luck because you got a hit off Jim Palmer. Base hit, left field. Parker is on. I honestly don't know how you didn't win the MVP that year. I mean, George Foster had a career year, but in 77, you hit 338 with 21 home runs, 215 hits, which was good enough for third in the MVP voting. But in 78, you finally got your due. He can throw, he can hit, you'll steal a base for you at time. You hit 334, 30 home runs, and you picked up your second gold glove. That was a great year. Yeah, that was. Did you feel like you should have won, though, in 77? I could have won in 77, but 85 was the one mystery to me. How did they keep me from being an MVP? Because in 85, you had this resurgence at 34 years old. You hit 312, 34 home runs, 125 RBIs, and you come up second in the MVP voting. Hey, apologies to Willie McGee. He had a good year, but you absolutely should have won the MVP that year. Yeah, that was a tough one. Those pirate teams in the late 70s. We are family. I got all my sisters in me. We're so fun to watch. There was a swagger about those ball clubs. You and Willie Stargell. A high, deep drive. Hit back into deep right center. And it's going to be out of here for a three-run home run. Willie Stargell explodes one out of here to deep right center field. Warming up in the on-deck circle with a sledgehammer. Pitcher Doc Ellis always dressed immaculately like he just walked out of a magazine. You guys just had a confidence. We did. We were family, and that was very true. That was something that fell in our lap, that song. But we were a family way before that. We were a team that cared about each other. We, uh... Never was out of a ball game. We uh, did whatever was necessary to win. And we reflected the city of Pittsburgh because we were blue collar. We tried to live up to that. You talk to a lot of former players who say now, and even said then, they would see you guys before the game, they would see you after the game, and they would remark to themselves, man, those guys look like they're having fun. I wish I played for the Pirates. (laughs) Winfield was like that. Winfield, say, you, you guys have fun. Look at you with the big black bat, long socks. You hit them from the stardom. You got everything. And you say, you guys are, are really having fun. 
Hey, speaking of We Are Family, in 1979, the Pirates got off to kind of a slow start. And then one night at Three River Stadium, you're sitting in the dugout next to Willie Stargell, and they start playing We Are Family over the PA. Stargell looks at you and says, hey, we're going to make that the team song. What did you say to him? Anything Willie wants, Willie gets. <laughs> that becomes the, the song, and that becomes the year. Yeah, that was the year that we won it all. The All-Star Game was at the Kingdom in 79. From the fabulous Kingdom in Seattle, Washington, in America's Pacific Northwest, NBC Sports presents the 50th Major League Baseball All-Star Game. And your arm, which has always been regarded as one of the strongest in baseball history, was on full display. In the seventh inning, Jim Rice hits a ball that hits the turf and bounces over you. You run back, retrieve it, and hose him at third. And it's a two-base hit, and Rice is going to try for three, and he will not make it. Dave Parker talking to each other out there. But what a recovery to show a tremendous throwing arm with a perfect one-hopper to say to get Rice. Do you remember that throw? Yeah. He didn't stand a chance. Well, Jimmy had no business running anyway. He uh, had gotten lucky and lost the ball in the red, white, and blue ribbon that they had at the top of the stadium. So I'm looking for the ball. Joe Morgan looking for the ball. Pete trying to find the ball. Can't nobody find the ball. So we heard this bump about 20 yards behind him. And that was where the ball landed. And I went back and grabbed the ball. And I figured Rice should be right around third. So my attention went towards third base. And I look up and see him and Ron Say just standing at the base. And I let loose a throw. And it took one hop right in the glove. Then with the game tied, Greg Nettles hit a ball to right that Brian Downing tried to score on from second. And you got him. Line drive. Do you remember that throw? Yeah, that was uh, a ball that hit a seam out in uh, Seattle's right field, and it popped up, bounced off the ground real high, and I jumped up and got it. Downing is rounding third, and I just said there was no time to hit the cutoff, man, so I had to let it go, and I threw my best shot, and it carried all the way to the plate. Were there times in those moments where you have a smile on your face because you know what your arm can do? Well, the throw that the best throw was the one the home plate because I kept that ball about head high. I didn't let it go all the way. So I, I had it down and it carried, ended up being a, the greatest throw in all-star history. In the postseason, you hit 341. The Buccos defeat the Reds in the National League Championship Series and advance to the World Series to play the Baltimore Orioles. The 1979 World Series. The clamor of the fans equals the glamour of the event. Looking back on that team, leadoff man Omar Moreno gets him rolling. The Cobra, Dave Parker, brings him home. There was no way that you guys were going to lose, was there? No, we weren't going to allow ourselves to lose. They, they messed up when they did introduction. And, uh, Pat Kelly. Pat Kelly came out and did a little dance on the foul line. And uh, we were down 3-1. 
And everybody in the Pirates dugout jumped up and said, let's see you dance the seventh game. And we had a few other words that I can't use. And uh, something happened. It triggered us. It changed the momentum. We went on to win that game. We just had to walk on the field. We had defeated them already. Guess who makes the last out in the World Series? Kelly hits it in the air to center field. Moreno going toward right center, makes the catch. Pittsburgh wins it. Pat Kelly. So how great was that moment? It was great. That whole thing was great. I ran in the clubhouse to try to get him on the phone, and I wanted to ask him to dance now. I couldn't <laughs> get him on the phone. I'm so surprised he wouldn't take your call. Well, he was instrumental to us winning that little thing that he did. The funniest things trigger momentum and make you a winner. That's what he did for us. By 1984, you signed with the Cincinnati Reds, the team that you grew up watching. Here's Parker. And he rips the first one in between Hernandez and the bag. A run will score. The Reds have the lead. Rose on his way to third. DeMars stops him there. It's a double for Parker. So Dave Parker comes home. The Cincinnati. He is so popular here. They say he's a completely different man and personality here. What was it like to finally come home and play in front of your mom and dad? It was great. They were getting up in age, and uh, my father hadn't seen me play at the major league level that much. And uh, it was great to have them at home where I can go over and eat lunch, spend some time with them. It was great having my parents there. And your mom's famous meal, what was your what was your favorite thing that your mom cooked for you? My mother cooked a frozen roast one day in about 20 minutes. And I had Stardew and John Milner up to the house. And uh, John ate so much food that he fell asleep on the floor. It was after a day game. <laughs> and uh, he fell asleep. She put him to sleep with her roast. So her <laughs> roast and fried chicken was my favorite meal. I love, by the way, the story of how you bought your parents a home. And your dad, who was a very proud man, was like, hey, look, I don't want you to buy a house. And you said what to him? I told him, I'm not buying it for you. I'm buying it for mom. <laughs> You're buying it for mom. I love that story. Do you remember the first time you officially walked out on the field at Riverfront Stadium in a Reds uniform? Good evening, everybody. From Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati, Joe Knoxall and yours truly, Marty Brenneman, welcoming you to Reds baseball. That first game, what that felt like? Yeah, that was, and it hurt a little bit. And uh, I reminisced. And then I thought about what I had to do. When you played against your former team, the Pirates, they were wishing they never let you go. Every time you played them, I think you made them regret that they didn't do everything they could to hold on to you. I made some noise. I would get two or three home runs and make a play. Did a lot of damage to the Pirates. In 1989, you are now in Oakland A. Here's a 1-0 pitch. Curveball line deep right field. That one is on its way out of here, folks. And that team was an all-star team. Ricky Henderson leading off. Carney Lansford, I think, hit second. Canseco, third. You hit fourth. McGuire, fifth. Dave Henderson, sixth. Tony Phillips, Walt Weiss. Teams would avoid watching you guys take batting practice because I think they would be so demoralized before a game even started. Yeah, they didn't like to watch BP. uh, We had guys that hit the ball in the seats, hit the ball out of the stadium. McGuire hit it through the roof in Arizona. 
So nobody wanted to watch that before they had to go to work. No surprise that the 89 A's, with your addition and some others, make it to the World Series. Welcome to Oakland, California. Game one of the 1989 World Series. An aerial view of the Oakland Alameda County Coliseum. The fifth time the World Series has been held here. They're calling it the Battle of the Bay. They're also calling it baseball. The A's beat the Giants in the 89 World Series. What was it like to win your second world championship? It was great. The second one is always greater. And um, it gave me the opportunity to win a second World Series and one in the American League, one in the National League. So I uh, covered the gamut. You were known for coming up with some great sayings, one of which had to do with winning the batting crown. When the leaves turn brown, I'll be wearing the batting crown. And so many times you were. One final question, and we'll get you out of here on this. Looking back, out of all the guys you played with in your career, who were you most excited to get to play against or with? I um, enjoy competing against Pete Rose because he played the game the way it should be played. He played hard. He would get hit intentionally to get on base late in the ball game. He was um, my type of player. You guys sometimes would work out at the same batting cage facility in Cincinnati in the offseason, right? Yeah, Western Hills. They had a, a cage that we used to hit at. It used to be Dave Justice, Pete Rose, Leon Durham, myself, Tony Scott. Um, it was quite a few ball players from this area that, that worked out okay. Listen, Dave, if I had a vote, and I wish I did, I would have zero hesitation to vote you into the Baseball Hall of Fame. You belong there. In the 1970s and 80s, the best players in baseball were Rod Carew, Johnny Bench, Mike Schmidt, Jim Palmer, Nolan Ryan, Tom Seaver, Reggie Jackson, Joe Morgan, Pete Rose, Yaz, Carlton Fisk, Willie Stargell, and you. You deserve that call one day, and I hope it comes sooner than later. Thank you. I appreciate that. Also, I do want to mention that your book, Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood, is a great read. It's available on Amazon.com and also your website, DaveParker39Foundation.com. Right. You can do it, too. Well, Dave Parker, I really appreciate the time. It's been an honor to spend a little time with you this morning and, uh, and, a, and a thrill for me to travel back in time and hear you tell some stories. Well, it was great talking to you, and I enjoy telling stories because I make my day. I wish you all the best. You too. We'll talk to you down the road. All right. Sounds good. Really, really enjoyed that. Dave Parker has been bravely fighting Parkinson's disease for nearly a decade now. Our thoughts and prayers are with him as he continues his fight. Listen, I was born and raised a Cleveland fan, but as a kid in the 70s, I loved Dave Parker. I wanted to be Dave Parker. When I was probably seven or eight years old, our family was living in Castleberry, Florida at the time, and typical of families in the 70s, we had plastic coverings on our couches. We had these plastic runners throughout the house that covered our carpet to keep them from getting dirty, I guess. Well, I would take my mom's bottle of Pledge, uh, her furniture polish, and I would spray those plastic runners from one end to the other. Then I'd throw on my yellow and black Pittsburgh Pirates pajamas, and I would slide across the house pretending to be the Cobra. <laughs> those were good times. Thank you for joining us for the season one finale of the Lost Ballparks podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. The premiere of season two is April 13th, and our first guest in season two is one of the greatest players to ever put on a uniform. He was a first ballot Hall of Famer and currently holds a record that will never, ever be broken. This is one episode you will not want to miss. 
A quick reminder, if you're new to the podcast or Lost Ballparks, we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you again for listening. Really appreciate all the kind words and feedback. The season two premiere of the Lost Ballparks podcast is April 13th. We'll talk to you then.